Hello and welcome to another episode of Cyber Tech Talks. As we know, cyber incidents happen every day and thousands of organisations trust their employees to decide whether to contain an incident immediately or investigate further. Containing an incident too late may result in the threat actor achieving their objectives, for example, ransoming your business. Containing an incident too early may lead the threat actor to advance their timeline and go berserk on your network. John Rogers and Mehmet Mertzameli from WebSecure break down what incident responders consider when timing and formulating a containment strategy. They also discuss the striking point and share case studies. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, my name is Mehmet Mertzameli. Uh, that's that's a long name. Most people just call me Mart or Matt. Uh, I'm happy with either. I'm one of the principal incident response consultants here at WeSecure, um, research-led uh, cybersecurity consultancy, where we try to help our you know clients and partners in any way we can really. Uh, and I'm here joined by uh, my colleague, friend, and my boss, uh, John. Uh, I'll let him introduce introduce himself. Hey guys, thanks Mert for that introduction. Um, yeah, as Mert said, I'm John Rogers. I'm the global head of the incident response team for WithSecure. I've uh, been with the company for a number of years and uh, seen quite a few different sorts of incidents. Uh, might have worked with a lot of listeners of the show. Today, uh, Mert's asked me to uh, uh, yeah, spend the time brainstorming on a bit of a research that uh, he's been doing um, and something that I think a lot of those in the incident response community may be familiar with. It's got to do with uh, containing from a from an attack. Um, so yeah, Mert, over to you. Yeah, all right, let's do it. So um, we we while while working, we don't really get a lot of time sometimes to catch up on topics or uh, do stuff like this. So currently, I'm working to kind of iron out this this thing we kept calling that thing in the industry containment strike zone the the perfect spot that where your you know further investigation reveals no truth or doesn't help your containment strategy um but uh you know uh, it's it's the perfect time for you to attempt to contain the threat actor so um in the research I'm trying to keep it generic try to target uh, both, you know, a single host compromise or a major incident where, you know, all of the domain or the network might have been compromised. But just trying to identify what is, you know, what is it that makes us, the incident responders, decide, okay, I think this is a good time to go. Like, how do we document this knowledge? Um, I, I do sense like most of my colleagues and John and myself, we have this internal clock that's built into us through experience. But the question is, can we actually make this experience into a process or a framework where, you know, people who may lack this experience or skills in their organization can use it? Um, I want to use this session kind of interview John, but maybe... If he wants to uh, kind of further provide insight uh, into the subject. Yeah, so maybe for those that um, not really working in incident response or haven't had several years experience, um, maybe let's give an overview in terms of you know, why would we want to delay containment? And um, isn't it, oh no, we've detected it, let's rebuild everything. Um, surely it's logical to think that something's beaconing out to 
a known malicious IP address and you want to um, you know, block it on your firewall and you know, close it off as soon as possible. Um, what's your take on that, Moat? And I mean, should we still be doing that? Yeah, I think this this is this is kind of like where I where I started asking this question because uh, sometimes our team you know helps we we respond to incidents. Uh, that's that's our our team's main purpose. But during peacetime, we also do tabletops and preparations. Uh, you know, with the clients, we call it incident readiness. Um, and during multiple tabletops, you know, the the client asked us, "Hey, there is an advice out there that you shouldn't, you know, contain immediately once you know something. Sometimes it's easier, like it's better to, you know, investigate and contain later. And that's because." You know there are there are multiple reasons people give why you would want to investigate further, such as you know you don't want to tip off the threat actor that you you're onto them. Uh, they might have multiple access, and you know you blocking one, it doesn't remove them. It might you know um, give them a bit more he- heads up, and they might speed up on their attack they might decide to action on the objectives before they lose all access right but honestly when i was asked this question by the clients i realized we talk about this containment strike zone but we really we we haven't put it in words like you know when, when is it actually to like you cannot you cannot afford to wait anymore what is that spot uh, for the clients and that's that's why kind of why we get got into this uh, trying to figure this out. I, I realize you know we're we're both incident responders and sometimes we we get uh, lost in our own knowledge. Like uh, we 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 talk about this stuff all the time. So to us, the some of these are second nature. But you know there are a lot of different professions in cybersecurity and. We're in, I am not fully, uh, you know, familiar with some of the processes, terms, and things that you have to do in other fields. But uh, so we're, yeah. That, thanks for reminding John to kind of take a step back there. Uh, sure. So I mean, maybe let's let's look at uh, you know, the variables at what's at stake here. So um, we can start small, build it up to a you know, massive what we would call the full domain compromise. Uh, with implants running on domain controllers, um, but let's start small. Pretend we've got a you know, hypothetical incident, um, and there's you know, an unknown executable uh, or process speaking to a, a known bad. Well, we don't know if it's a bad IP address. We don't know what the uh, business impact is of taking this host down. Uh, we don't know if it's legitimate use. Uh, what are the variables and what do we really want to do uh, to understand this and make an informed decision in terms of uh, executing some form of containment? I think what I'm going to do is, because I've been thinking a lot about this, I'm going to like kind of give the uh, the traditional SOC threat hunting or security engineering approach on how they would you know, react to this and then kind of turn to you for expert advice on how an IR would handle it if it was confirmed so um for you know in in general we find that our clients will get an alert from their av product or an edr endpoint detection response product um a security product just saying hey we detected this ip it is a backdoor now first thing we want more every every 
uh, organization to do is validate this. I mean, it you have to it, you have to check if this is a false positive. But after the threat is validated, and you you have someone let's say talking out from your network, they have a backdoor effectively. Um, and let's say this is a server device, which means like they had they had to move laterally to get there. Um, what do we do, John? Like, uh, what is what is your first advice? Would be. I think the first thing you do is uh, pick up the phone and make sure that your IR team is aware of this, of course. And uh, you know, everyone is whoever needs to be aware is involved in the conversations, um, at least as a in a standby mode. Um, then going around and seeing what the business impact is of this device. If it's something that's meant to be decommissioned already, it's probably going to be forgotten about on your asset lists and things like that. But sometimes there are quick wins in terms of uh, you know, first steps you can take. Then uh, I guess is trying to understand, is this a false positive or is this related to something else in the environment? Um, I think particularly in a SOC background, um, and there might be changes to applications or uh, you know, particular products that all of a sudden uh, speaks to new IP addresses or domains that you weren't aware of and it could be easily associated to something out there that's legitimate. But likewise, um, you might all of a sudden say, oh, hold on, this is a potentially suspicious IP address, but um, it's not only this host that's been beaconing out to it, but it's a it looks like we've got five or six other hosts um, potentially in the same network or related uh, networks that are also talking to it. Um, and then you say, oh no, this has potentially got a, a greater impact. I would say first thing is just to take a calm breath, figure out what, what does this really mean and how long has this been going on for? If it's something that's obviously been something new, sure, it might be worth taking action. But if it's been going on for you know several weeks at a time, a couple of minutes here and there isn't really going to make you know, that much of a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm gonna kind of I think like you the the point that you kind of touched at the at the last point is uh, what I've like noted down as the threat actor progress to action you know to their objective, right? Um, so, like, as you're saying, if they've been in the network more than three, four weeks um, or, like, more longer periods, like we see in some state actors, six months, one year, uh, they might already be on that later stage there actively, you know, action on their objective. But versus someone who's been in your network five minutes, uh, they're obviously um, might be an earlier in the attack. But the, the question is, how do... How can you, as an incident responder, John, like uh, get an understanding that how long have they been in the network? Like, what do you rely on as an incident responder to determine how long the threat actor has been in the network? I guess the first thing is if we're talking about network indicators, go straight to your your firewall logs or potentially your endpoint logs. Um, hopefully, you've got some form of uh, EDR solution where you can quickly run a quick search and see you know, when did this first occur, how long has this been going on for, um, and identify if there's any related changes. Um, I'm going to limit it to that because otherwise we might get carried away with uh, all sorts of fun log analysis that we, we like to cut our teeth on. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think uh, you you hit the nail in the head right there. It's exactly what I was hoping you would get to. Uh, honestly, I think this is this is one of the key considerations I keep coming in my research. The estate visibility is uh, is absolutely a must if you're kind of going back, looking backwards. Um, obviously, if you have EDR technologies. Uh, or you know you centralized your network logging, you have a lot more advantages. Uh, but it's uh, one challenge I identified like working in incidents actually is that sometimes the the data you have on your endpoint agent or you know the central sim is not really searchable if you're looking for something in the last six especially, months. Right? Especially especially when they don't have a sim, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly what I was like hoping your insight on. Like, they, they, I think over time, over time, like we we understand there is people who are in their different part of their cybersecurity maturity, right? They're 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 on the roadmap. You cannot just immediately uh, become the best cyber, you know, most secure company out there. But what what do we do if it's uh, like what should the organization who don't have centralized simming uh, centralized you know logging or centralized data to you know investigate further like what is the approach that you recommend yeah so in, the, in this thing i think we need to look at the immediate concern about uh, what's the risk to the business and what's their risk appetite can they allow this to continue obviously we don't know what the um, if it is malicious, uh, what their objectives might be. Obviously, I think everyone's quite aware of the ransomware pandemic since you know, 2020 with um, big brands being hit by ransomware by low, uh, sort of, uh, low-skilled threat actors. And, and we see that on a weekly basis. But um, quite often, there may be, uh, these environments may have already have you know, offline backups on a daily basis and they could be spun up by uh, you know, a couple of scripts um, and uh, you know, nothing real damaging or could be just a brochure web website uh, that can easily be rebuilt. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes this might be a gateway into internet banking or something with housing sensitive uh, customer data obviously is a big one when it comes to GDPR and risks that definitely changes the game. So it really depends on where this is happening um, and what's the risk appetite of the organization uh, has um, obviously that's I guess a, a new variable that we're introducing is the risk appetite um, and then obviously considering the time that it's taken us to get to this point and uh, where we think the, the threat yeah. actor is on the network w would you say um, so let's say if this was a um, you know bank uh, and they have you know one of their central actual production server you know talking out and they somehow uh, all those surprising four banks, uh, in my experience, that they don't have uh, central logging or any, you know, past data. Like, what what is the approach you're seeing in the industry? Like, how does a professional company like ourselves help these people? Yeah, sure. So the the obvious recommendation here really is to um, you know, get that visibility on the network. Um, uh, it's so easy to uh, deploy cloud-based solutions that can, you know increase your visibility of your network and identify um, you know, hosts that aren't be, haven't been covered by uh, existing security tools. Um, ourselves, we, um, like many other incident response organizations, 
uh, obviously turn to XDR technologies and are able to rapidly deploy uh, in a matter of hours, assuming you know, commercially everything's okay. Um, and then we can at least get a, a little bit of sense of uh, where this is on the network. Um, you know, I'm sure every responder uh, out there coming back to the network logs, that's uh, your first point of call, but uh, time and time again, um, you know, once we get those logs, we see that they're only valid for a couple of minutes, if at all. Uh, so definitely getting your additional technology from the endpoint, but then also ensuring um, on the perimeter that your, your, your firewalls are at least configured to log locally um, and then offline so you can have a look at that later. Yeah, I think you, you touched a very critical point there, which is the commercial commercials, right? It's uh, This is why I think a lot of the incident response companies recommend retainers because uh, the, the fact is that the, there needs to be some commercial coverage for us to be able to, the professional services companies, to actually come in and help you. Uh, without that commercial coverage, they're, they're legally challenged to help you out. So this is, I think, is a good point. This reminds me on one of the very, very first cases, actually, I I joined when I joined uh, jo uh, to with Secure. The client had, um, you know, recently uh, bought, you know, retained our services. Uh, they came to us and uh, they said they detected some, uh, you know, malicious activity that someone was talking out from their network. And... Um, to make things worse, and they're they're getting more detections every hour, um, and uh, the f because they had that commercial coverage, we were able to tell them. You know, I was able to tell them with John's guidance uh, that you know we we have to get that visibility up. Please, you know, deploy the agent as soon as possible. And to credit to them, like they definitely this is one of the challenges I think I see as an incident responder when we tell people, okay, uh, everything's ready, we're ready. Please deploy our agent. Some organizations will take uh, days because they end up, you know, having to rally that internal support uh, from the IT to get that agent deployed everywhere. Uh, but this client was able to deploy it within a few hours, and we could immediately see, within, you know, gain our their estate visibility went from nothing to everything, and we could exactly see where the threat actor uh, was. And I do think, like, I look back to that incident. It was a ransomware operator, and they had they already had domain admin uh, on a Wednesday, and we we know most ransomware actors like to execute on a weekend, and I think that was a very close call, and their their resilient and uh, their responsiveness to our recommendations, I think, uh, might have turned the corner there uh, for them. Um, I want to kind of like kind of maybe touch into the point that we're like kind of dancing around uh, is which is the containment uh, containment readiness you know there is there is a lot of actions that we you know when a client calls me up and I know they have a full network compromise uh, we you know we generally start building up a, immediately a containment plan uh, but uh, what does it mean to you uh, or like from your experience John to be ready for containment what are you know the key key things an organization should be doing to increase that preparedness yeah so i think first of all um, the ability to make changes on the estate i think is uh, is quite an obvious one um, 
but also the ability to help investigators understand exactly what's going on. So if you having if you have at least the endpoint visibility, we can perform a rapid investigation to gain that knowledge in terms of what's going on. Obviously, without the investigation, we don't really know what's happened on the endpoints, what malware is running, what persistence techniques they've used. Um, and without that information, containment's basically just going to be futile, right? Um, I think the elephant in the room here is if we, we go back to that case study that you were sort of talking about. And uh, I remember every every agent or every host that they deployed to, um, yeah, it was, we got a detection for like Cobalt Strike Beacon after Cobalt Strike Beacon. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Cobalt Strike, uh, sort of a ex post-exploitation framework um, loved by red teams and loved even more by threat actors. Um, but uh, yeah, the risk here is that we've got a whole bunch of advanced malware or potentially advanced malware um, running on a whole bunch of machines and uh, we don't really have full visibility of where they may have been. Uh, the next thing is you know, the ability to remove that malware. Obviously, they've bypassed some form of antivirus uh, or, or application whitelisting um, you know, that has been de previously deployed, if any. Uh, so we need a means of you know, terminating those processes and I think in a coordinated manner. I think the next uh, big thing is understanding exactly how this got in because uh, there's no point you know, closing your windows and putting burglar bars on it if uh, your front door is wide open uh, with a big uh, sign saying, please enter here. Um, and that's uh, obviously comes to the main part of investigation is the root cause analysis. So um, if without doing you know, a bit of evidence preservation and en enabling someone or your SOC team to go away and perform the analysis with support of you know, external companies, um, then um, it's essentially, there's, there's no point doing it, right? Yeah, this is, this, I will definitely go back to root cause because uh, I've been thinking about it and I have some different ideas and I think it would be a great forum to unpack these. Uh, but just to cover what you said, and I, I'm I'm loving it because like I'm hearing this from like multiple incident responders, the same way you're putting it, which is the containment readiness is two things, which is ability to make changes and ability to remove remove the changes that threat actor has implemented. It it is twofold, um, and I find that you know the the changes that are implemented by the threat actor. The EDR products are quite good at removing it in majority of the scenarios. Can you give a can you give an example of uh, some of those changes for those of that have never had to do this uh, using you know, EDR tools in general? Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's take it a perspective from a thread actor, right? It's uh, it's nine a.m. I woke up. I have a breakfast. Uh, I'm a I'm a criminal. Uh, I I have, you know, I had my beer uh, beer also in the morning, let's say, and I'm on my laptop uh, and I'm ready to call some havoc. Uh, and I realized someone actually clicked on a phishing link, right? So they, I have a foothold in a network. First thing I want to do as a threat actor, and what this is what we see the threat actors doing, is that they want to persist in that network, right? Um, so we find. That threat actor, like the trend actually that we, this is an internal discussion that we had recently uh, when we were talking about um, threat actor trends, that historically threat actors were leaning on 
uh, frameworks like Cobalt Strike to get gain persistence. Uh, recently, that has become credentials because it's so hard to determine the admin credentials versus malicious activity. So what I'll do is uh, I'll get some credentials, might be from the initial foothold that I've gained, or I move laterally, find an exploit, and then be able to maybe VPN in directly or create a new user that doesn't have MFA enabled. So once I'm on the network, I might deploy some more backdoors. So I've seen threat actors, for example, uh, moving on to the web servers and leaving web shells, which is a file file-based uh, persistence where you have a web page where you can interact with the system through uh, by placing this file uh, as a you know backup door. Uh, so just to summarize, uh, the changes you might need to implement might be you need to clean the user's laptop, so it might be deleting the malware or um, you know making some changes to the configuration of the laptop. Uh, which is going to be removing the registry entry for those who knows what registry is, uh, or removing some scheduled task services. And it might be that you need to kill some processes, delete files, um, you know, and the changes, which is where the IT part come from, I think, is that removing user accounts. And I think most EDR products still, uh, although they can ban users and ban processes, um, they they don't have identity, you know. They don't have rights or um, the functionality to make changes to your identity systems. So that's where your IT team comes in. Uh, when the investigation team goes, hey, can you block these IPs and remove these user accounts and password reset these? That's that's three different tickets for an IT administrator. That's three different resources on three different. Uh, areas. I don't know if I went uh, too far with uh, with the explanation, but John, do you want to summarize if I got lost? Yeah, no, I think um, it kind of went a little bit off topic, but I think that's fine. Um, the main thing is there's a bunch of tasks that need to happen, and I think uh, uh, the ability to do this remotely, I think, is a, a big thing. Uh, one being uh, killing persistence techniques, uh, whether that's you know. WMI-based persistence or uh, registry auto-runs or uh, scheduled tasks. Um, and then there's obviously the uh, the more you know, Active Directory-based persistence attacks, um, which uh, probably takes a bit more time to get into. Um, but I think, obviously, when we're talking about a, um, a full domain compromise, um, is uh, the main thing that you should be thinking about is the attacker has domain admin privileges and the network was essentially theirs. Uh, so looking at those more dangerous attacks, um, this is nothing new, by the way. Um, I think you know, golden tickets, silver tickets have been documented for uh, several years already. Um, and essentially anyone with domain admin rights um, can impersonate any user on the estate. Um, we actually put together a blog post a few years ago uh, made by an ex-colleague uh, if any of those, any of the listeners out there need support in terms of how do you do um, you know, a domain take-back exercise um, and uh, prevent attacks such as a golden ticket attack. Cool. Cool. I think um, we're kind of coming a natural end to like containment readiness there. I want to kind of dive into the topic that I'm really curious about. 
which is root cause analysis, right? So um, in in my experience, um, you know, sometimes it's it's not possible to find the root cause because it's it's time worn. Uh, so I, I ask myself, how important is root cause if the threat actor is running away with your data and you're looking at it, right? I feel I feel you are obliged to act in that scenario. You have to, um, you know, do some containment, a best effort containment to stop them. But we don't know what the root cause is. Like, what is the what is the scenario? Is root cause? Have we got this wrong as incident responders? Is root cause is a consideration, but is it maybe it's not critical to containments? What do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's definitely worth addressing this. Um, quite often, you know, as responders, we combine containment and eradication as one simple step. So, of course, we need to account for there are some containment things we can do to prevent further damage to the business. So, for example, if customer data is going out, we can contain a particular system um, or bring down an application um, under the guise of maintenance. Um, so, the threat actor might not know that we've obviously you know, done something to prevent their attack from working. Um, but then where we look into eradication is actually shutting down the entry point um, and removing all malware and persistence techniques to actually kick them off the network. Does that make does that fit into your uh, your definitions and what you've been working on? I think I think it does. I think I realize maybe it's there. There is a there is a sub scenario um, to it because um, what I was coming to like as a conclusion on my research is that if you have uh, if you have a you know good visibility on your network, which means you can see all process creations. Um, you have some visibility on, you know, file and registry changes, for example, that would be more advanced. But if we at least have process creation and, you know, users who are creating it, um, I was thinking, even if you don't know the uh, the entry point, maybe if you see that your data is going out, you attempt a best effort containment. It might include some blanket items such as, you know, resetting, you know, performing a domain take back. Uh, removing all known malicious items from the whole network, resetting admin passwords. But um, I think this is where um, I'm thinking of a best effort containment, right? So instead, but uh, I think your suggestion is that like maybe do a limited containment so that which becomes another category of containment. So you have the full containment, which is I find that, you know, you're, you rarely have time to complete investigation to reach that, um, you know, full state. Although it's very easy with an EDR product and fee base, um, and uh, it, the the second one, which is a best effort, which is you attempt uh, to best of your knowledge uh, um, and containment with some, you know, blanket items that impacts uh, definitely will hamper the threat actor and monitor. And a third one, which is a limited containment, which I I don't think I've, um, I think I've seen this implemented uh, in incident response, but I haven't seen it actually come up in this research. Um, would you agree with that three categories? Yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't necessarily name it the same way, um, but if I'd look at containment, essentially 
as buying the investigation team time to figure out the root cause and the scope of the full compromise. Um, so if we can protect the business from you know, certain damage, it does become hard when they've got the main admin and uh, the damage the actor wants to do is execute ransomware. Um, but we need to look at something that can delay the damage. And of course, part of that is ensuring that the threat actor doesn't really know that we're about to kick them off the network. Um, so there's definitely um, yeah, a balance to be to had here. Um, and again, it just comes down in terms of the business goals and can they really function without that particular environment or uh, you know, subdomain of their you know, wider estate. No, I think that's a that's a very good point. Um, uh, which which kind of like uh raised another like touches another thing that we we identified, which is the you mentioned you know ransomware with, with what they want to do, what they're motivated by. Um, so we're, we're there are financial uh financially motivated threat actors, and there are you know politically motivated threat actors, and there are emotional ones, which is. You know, you have fired me unfairly, and I will hurt you. Uh, type of you know resentment. Um, would you say there's a different strategy to you know all three categories of threat actors? You know, the financial one, emotional, and political ones. Yeah, so I think you've all got to look down, look at the capability of each of these groups. Um, if the emotional actor happens to have you know a load of resources and is well funded. They could arguably you know, perform more damage than a you know a, a criminal group can. Um, so I would say we need to look at the the capability of these particular actors, um, and then of course identify you know, when they would like to act and what what their damage. You know, how are they going to do that? But um yeah I'm obviously we've been you've been asking me a lot of questions. I'm quite curious to hear in terms of obviously I've seen a, a sneak peek of uh, you know exactly what you're building here. But um, for those of you that are listening today, do you want to give like a, uh, a an overview or like a sneak peek into the research and what the outcome of that really is for the for someone consuming that research and hopefully um, you know for other incident responders out there to consider when they want to um, you know, execute containment? Yeah, I think like one thing I hope to achieve with this. Uh piece is that like I don't know if I'm gonna have the right answer but I think this has like the the timing of containments or like documentation on it has been um it's not been touched so I hope it sparked some you know conversation and more discussion but uh, I've I've so far I've identified um my my goal is to I identify some key considerations and uh based on the interviews I'm having uh, I've assigned some, um, you know, criticality and weight um, to these considerations. How critical are they in terms of, you know, timing and strategizing the containment? Um, I had an initial attempt on, on the calculator of, you know, this calculating this, the score, how close are you to this or how, you know, what's your containment strike zone score is. But I feel, you know, after having conversations, I am like, you know, fine tuning and it has few more months to cook. But I'll I'll give a sneak peek or like, you know, what are the like key considerations we're looking at? And I think the each of these feed in differently. So I think they need to be previously, uh, they need to be calculated into the formula or the score differently. So the top thing that comes up each and every time that I spoke, spoke to people 
that uh, if you have a compro confirmed compromise uh, and you know that Threat Actor has propagated in your network uh, more than one host, you need to bring that estate visibility up. So estate visibility becomes, you know, it's it's it, there is three benefits that people raised in terms of estate visibility. One, being able to investigate into the past. Two, being able to monitor the changes that Tradactor is implementing and performing live, right? So it's uh, if you're behind the Tradactor with, you know, forensic, if you're doing image analysis only, you're collecting an image, you're transferring the image to the incident responder, they're investigating, you're at least a day behind the Tradactor. And I think this having this estate visibility really helps you to react to the threat actor within 15 minutes, 5 minutes, whatever you are. How fast can you do that analysis? Um, and the third part is, I think this is the, the post-containment part, which is if you perform a containment and if you have missed something and threat actor comes back in, then you have the chance to catch them. Like with a with a limited visibility, you you let's say you got lucky and you contained them, you know, correctly ninety nine percent of the places, but you missed one web shell somewhere, and they came back in and they just rushed through your network to get to their objective, and they destroy, you know, they can destroy you within an hour because they already are a network, they already uh, know. So I think having that visibility when they come back is quite uh, critical. So there is. Almost estate visibility is ranking as the top uh, contributor to containment timing and strategy right now. The the second one um, that I identified is the threat actor progress. Like and all, like most of these things we have spoken, uh, threat actor progress is. Um, there are few frameworks out there. There is the kill chain. There is the mitra techniques and tactics. Uh, but I think we looking at all the um, you know threat actor progression on an attack phase, um, we found that unified kill chain actually uh, matches the exact uh, you know what you need for a containment strategy, and it divides incidents to three categories, which is initial access, initial foothold, uh, network propagation, and action on objective, and the this comes in important because uh, the incident responders we've been talking to are naming these effectively, you know, looking at it and they're deciding on what are the, like these might be the trigger points, right? So if you are in the initial foothold and you're confident of your investigation, then, you know, you this is a great time to contain. If you're in the network propagation area, and your investigation is not complete. This is not a good time to, you know, contain. You have to progress with investigation. If the threat actor is on, on the stage of action on objective, which is, you know, you found they've staged some data, or you saw some data exfiltration, or they are, you know, you know, pr performing fraudulent activity on using your systems, then you have to, like you say, perform a limited or a best effort containment just to reduce the business risk. Um, so this is the part of the research I think is just very volatile, which is the next factor, scope of compromise. Because uh, I think 
our understanding of understanding of scope of compromise is something that builds as we investigate and um i think i realized that the scope of compromise like our understanding of scope of compromise and the traductors progress to to uh, actions or their objectives is goes hand in hand if we don't have a good understanding of scope of compromise at initial foothold it's again it's how do you know actually it's it's maybe you just detected the initial foothold maybe they are further down the line so um i i can i can like kind of kind of continue to listing these things but i think these three things are the critical parts to a containment that you know more so than the other parts we've touched which is response you know readiness capability response capability uh you know threat actor motivation and root cause i think everyone uh, i've spoken rated their state visibility uh scope of co- understanding of scope of compromise and threat actor progress highly i mean i would ask you you know yourself like would you say that's a fair assessment that we i've collected so far yeah i'd say so um obviously bearing in mind that each of those variables change on a daily basis and uh, as an investigation progresses you find more and uh, yeah. your confidence in what's out there of course changes um uh, likewise you know the threat actor may be coming back in terms of their attack and progressing and doing more uh, things so um i actually wanted to you know, pitch a question that uh, we get asked all the time um is uh, you know, by a CISO that um, you know we've identified a server or two that has some malicious activity on it. We have not identified the root cause, but we found out a um, you know a particular C2 channel that they're using. Um, the natural reaction for them is to block and to you know, execute containment as soon as possible. I mean, what's the how do we how do you go about? Uh, telling the CISO the risks of executing that containment too prematurely, um, or at least uh, executing the containment and not doing an investigation? I think, I think this, is, this has two perspectives, right? So as, as an outsider, when we come into an investigation, it's very easy to determine if proper investigation steps have taken, uh, been taken. So an example might be that you come into an investigation, you know, six hours a day later, and they tell you everything they've done, um, and you found, you know, you can tell they they are there are assumptions in the investigation, and uh, they they're they are their evidence or investigation has been limited to evidence sources, uh, certain evidence sources like just network logs, for example. So I think I feel quite uneasy as a you know consultant when I see an investigation that that wasn't you know that has assumptions in it and that hasn't covered um, the evidence sources that they should have. So, but as an internal, I guess like um, my advice if I come across that situation, I highlight the risks, I highlight what they might have missed in the investigation, and kind of you know give them an estimation of what actions that they should be doing to validate these, how long they will take. And, you know, the, obviously the risk of um, risk of 
not taking any actions now. But I find that there are, um, you know, based on the application and customer, there are immediate recommendations and, you know, uh, boards that you can, like, you know, limit the actions that you can take to reduce the risk. I don't know if that was the, like, you know, covered the extent of your question. I, I feel I missed some of it. Yeah, that's okay. I'll, I'll fill it in. I mean, the answer I was hoping you to, to give with maybe an example is, um, you know, we've spoken about the obvious of not containing and, you know, letting the threat actor do what they want on the network. Uh, but you've got to remember, you know, for more capable groups, their goal is for long-term access to the network and not necessarily something uh, for today or tomorrow. So the real risk that we, we're working on is that you know, if you contain too soon, um, that they just change their techniques completely. And uh, we've seen this on a couple of incidents. Obviously, we can't really you know, go into full details about that, um, but do a, a premature containment plan, uh, try and execute a you know, full domain take-back strategy without understanding uh, their persistence techniques and all the back doors that they left. And when they come back, they just up their sophistication uh, into you know, additional malware and start living off the land and doing a lot, sort of a slow and steady approach. Um, and then six months, six to 12 months later, they come back, um, you know, hoping that everyone's forgotten about the incident and, um, you know, with more capable tools and uh, progress their attack. Yeah, I think that's uh, particularly the political threat actors are actually falls into this category, right? So if you if we we find if you're a political threat actor, uh, which means you you have the backing of a state, you work nine to five, which is funny enough. And we have you know a lot of data we can actually see when they go to bed and when they come online and continue attacking, um, and. Uh, you like when you when you see such patterns of like you know nine to nine to five or you know nine to nine, um, just working away uh, Monday to Friday. Um, that's that's when when you need to think of a different containment strategy. There are immediate you know limited containments on uh, you know risks that you can reduce, like you know the limiting their access to the data, but. It will require IT changes and hardening of the network, maybe even uh, a six-month architectural project to keep, keep these guys out because they will come back. They are paid nine to five, nine to nine, or you know whatever the hours they work for to come back in, and they will try. You're right. Yeah, I'd go. I'd go more to say that um, obviously it's not every incident, uh, but this might even require a st strategic change in strategy for a business and that goes beyond the immediate security team uh, talking about which countries they operate in uh, the technologies they use um, and you know requires fundamental re-architecting of their entire environment um, so i guess you know the risk is that i'm trying to get at is sometimes we do have the opportunity to make slightly informed decisions um, but uh, and doing ad hoc to if you contain too quickly, uh, you're at risk of throwing away your intelligence and not actually making informed decisions um, for later down the line. But um, yeah, I guess that's the that's the whole goal of your your research, right? To help those um, in the driving seats of incident response, uh, maybe 
you know, trying to identify if they really should contain or not contain uh, based on you know, what they see in the environment. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's that trying to. It's it, it's even you know it's I think it's even further than that. Just sharing this knowledge with people, and I think because I think this knowledge exists in most of the incident response consultants, people who have seen multiple compromises and major incidents. But I think we need to share this knowledge further, uh, further than that. People who have not done major incident, if they come across it, they should know like these are the things that's going to save them and help them decide if they need to hold on to it a bit more to make more informed, you know, better informed decisions. Uh, I, I realize we're, ha- we're probably coming towards the end now. Um, if, uh, if you had to, I guess, you know, after all our discussion, had to leave viewers with like, you know, one takeaway, uh, what would it be? I would, I would say it's uh, as far as possible, um, yeah, take a step back, have a look at the situational context uh, before taking any um, harsh actions. Um, but that being said, don't, uh, if you see it on a Friday, act it on a Friday, don't wait for the for the next week before you uh, close off your whatever detections come in before you go home. Uh, just want to address things that what could go wrong during containment. Uh, is it possible that a containment plan causes more damage than what a particular threat actor could do? It, it is possible if you're not ready, right? This is touches on the containment readiness, which is if you have not documented some of the dangerous procedures of making those IT changes such as, you know, making changes to your uh, identity management systems. Like the, I think the Windows Windows one is a very good example. We had a case um, where we asked the, uh, the client to perform a, a, you know, golden ticket reset, resetting the KRBTGT account. Uh, the, the, the catch with this, the reset is that you have to do it twice, but you have to wait 10 hours because uh, of some architectural technical dis- uh, reasons. I will not go. If you don't wait that period, it breaks authentication in your network, which means you cannot authenticate and your network kind of dies. So we, we asked them to perform this. We warned them uh, about the risks. We gave them clear instructions. And then a few hours later, they called us and they said, authentication has broke in our network. Um, after you know looking at what they have done and investigated, we found that they wrote a script in Anger to reset all user passwords, which was part of the containment plan, which has also reset the KRBGTG account password again within the you know two hours of resetting it following the procedures uh, we recommended. Um, we had to help them obviously fix the uh, authentication and network, but it you know if the script was prepared or the procedure was documented prior to uh, the incident, they wouldn't have to you know come up with a script on point to reset all user passwords uh, and you know miss the fact that it will also hit the TGT account and break all authentication and cause operational downtime for all their business it's uh i think this is this is like a, a 
this is a story that you don't get to see a lot because you we always emphasize very hard on you know the risks and make sure we're there with the clients helping them but that was a real example of what how it can go wrong yeah no thanks for bringing that that uh, that up and for those of you never heard of the Caribbean TGT account um, or anything got to do with golden tickets uh, if you're running a Windows environment uh, I suggest you read up on it Microsoft's actually uh, the latest guidance is that you you change it every six months and you you build a process around to change it I'd say arguably that's one of the the most uh, sensitive steps taken during a full domain recovery exercise um, there's a lot of other details that we can spend many hours talking about preferably over beer but um, yeah definitely check out the uh, the guidance around there um, and uh, we'll ensure that we also pop a link to uh, the original blog post that we put out about uh, you know why you would want to change it and uh, you know how that impacts your business very well I think um... We, I don't want to, um, you know, overburden our welcome. Is that there's a saying? Uh, what was the saying? The overstay our welcome. welcome. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for listening to us. Um, if you're interested to hear more, uh, I am not super active on Twitter, but if you message me, I will reply. Uh, and I think John, I don't know how they reach you, but you can always, you know contact our incident response team also send us an email uh, cir at wifsecure.com we do look at that email box almost every day so if you drop us an email saying hey I want to talk more about this we we don't mind talking more about these things that's uh, that's why we're in it Uh, it's it's our passion well I guess with that thank you thanks guys bye Thank you to Mehmet and John for sharing their expertise in all things incident containment. If you'd like to read up on this topic, we've shared a link to a blog by WiffSecure in the podcast show notes. We look forward to bringing you more episodes with cyber experts. Make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast on Twitter and LinkedIn for further updates. You can find us at Cybertech Talks Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Crest, an international not-for-profit membership body representing the global cybersecurity industry.